Thank you, Zach, for reading our scripture. Zach has been impressive today. Talk about take charge. I like that. Appreciate Zach. Very grateful for his reading scripture today and what a great job he has done. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I don't know if you noticed or not, but I got the nod tonight. I got hung out to dry this morning. I thought, I'll sit here until Jesus comes. <clears throat> but he did warn me. So anyway, fooled me once. But uh, anyway, we're glad you're here tonight. We are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're grateful for your presence tonight. And uh, thank you if you're visiting. As always, we invite you to come back. It might be the case that you have questions or comments about our worship, the lesson. We certainly invite you to please feel free to make those questions or comments known. We certainly want to uh, seek to the best of our ability to give you a Bible answer for everything that we practice here at Olive Branch Church of Christ. We are looking, as I said a moment ago, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We began this lesson last week. And I want us to pick back up where we left off last week, and I'm not going to make any promises in terms of finishing tonight. Uh, we may finish, we may not, I'm not really sure. But uh, nonetheless, we'll do our best. And we are talking tonight about prove all things by the book. And by that we simply mean that whatever we do, whatever we practice, we want to make sure that we have Bible authority for it. Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth in Matthew 28, verse 18. And God the Father said, with regard to His Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then He added this, hear Him, Matthew 17, verse 5. So whatever the Lord has to say, we want to make sure that we listen attentively and that we follow to the best of our ability. In our lesson last week, as we were discussing the topic, prove all things by the book, we were looking specifically at verse 21 where Paul said, prove or test all things. There's a call here for an examination. And what we said is that Paul is encouraging those of us who belong to the body of Christ and those of us who want to follow the Lord to make sure that we follow what has been recorded for us in Scripture, that we test what we hear in light of divine truth. Because after all, divine truth is what will ultimately judge us. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Jesus would also say in John chapter 12, at verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, he said, the same shall judge him in the last day. So it's incumbent on us to make sure that what we practice harmonizes with divine Scripture. As Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so we have tried to emphasize the importance of investigation, examination. Make sure that what you hear harmonizes with the Word of God. You remember the Bereans of old who searched the Scriptures daily to see whether the things which they heard were found in God's Word. And so what they did, we want to do today. What they did, we want to encourage others to do today. Now, in our study last week, 
I mentioned the fact that I had come up with what I have called the devil's dirty dozen. And what I've done is come up with 12 things that I believe are very popular. Matter of fact, many people, when we discuss these 12 items, what we'll find is that in the religious world at large, many of the things that we're going to be talk, talking about tonight, many of the things that we talked about last week, these things are believed and practiced by multitudes of people. And, you know, the devil is very sharp. He is shrewd. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 encourages us to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. And the devil wants to deceive. And so one of the ways that he seeks to deceive people is in the realm of religion. And so sometimes we talk about counterfeit Christianity. We understand what it means to talk about counterfeit currency, but what about counterfeit Christianity? There are a lot of things that are passed off as, well, they're passed off as divine truth when upon further investigation, we find out they don't meet the litmus test of divine truth. Now, last week in our study, we said, number one, the devil would have us to believe that there is no God. And we said that design demands a designer. We believe that God in heaven is the one who created the heavens, the earth. God is the one who made us in His image and likeness. And we talk about the evidence for God. And there's an abundance of evidence for a divine designer. We're not going to go back and, and discuss that at length. Number two, we said the Bible is, some have said the Bible is not inspired by God. Well, we believe the Bible is inspired by Almighty God. Paul said all Scripture, every Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit superintended those men who recorded for us what we call divine Scripture. Now, number three, some would say there is no absolute body of truth that can be understood. Well, we know that the Bible says that we can understand its sacred contents. As a matter of fact, Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 17, Be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Granted, it might take time and effort on our part. There are some passages of Scripture that may require much investigation, but nonetheless, we can still come to a knowledge of divine truth. Paul said he received revelation from God. He took that revelation, wrote it down in a few words, whereby when we read, we might understand his knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Number four, there are those who espouse the idea of religious authority rest in the church. Well, we tried to point out that Religious authority rests in divine Scripture. It doesn't rest in the church. The church has the responsibility of subjugating to the will of God, doesn't it? Jesus is the one who has all authority. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one that governs the behavior of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church has the responsibility of preaching and teaching divine truth. But we, as members of the body of Christ, are not authoritative when it comes to divine truth. Number five, there are those who would propagate the idea that mankind is born in sin. 
Ezekiel said in chapter 18, verse 4, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. In verse 20, the prophet said, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The Bible says that sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. We are not born in sin. We are born into a world of sin, but we're not born sinners. Now, number six. There are those in the religious world that teach, and they teach this quite often. As a matter of fact, I would say that most denominational bodies when they talk about how to become a Christian, how to become a child of God, typically what you hear them say is, accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and then recite what they call the sinner's prayer. I have before me tonight a card, and this card was published or produced by a denominational body that is located on Goodman Road in South Haven, Mississippi. On the back side of their card, I want to just read for you what they say about how to become a Christian because it has to do with the sinner's prayer. They write, if you believe what the Bible says and would like to ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, sincerely pray this prayer to God. And then here's what they say. Dear Lord, I realize I'm a sinner and that you died on the cross to pay for my sin. Please forgive my sin. Come into my heart and save me. I trust you alone to take me to heaven. Thank you for saving me, Jesus. Amen. Now I want to ask you a question. Is that what the Bible teaches? All right, how do we know that? Remember we said, Brother Bill said, by the Scripture. That's right. In Acts chapter 2, you, you recall, we were talking about Pentecost Day. On that day, the gospel was preached in all of its fullness to a great multitude of people assembled in Jerusalem. They were there to observe the Feast of Pentecost. And the Bible tells us that Peter and the other apostles preached the resurrected Christ. And Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now the Bible tells us in verse 37 that those who were assembled on that occasion were cut or pricked in their heart. And they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, and here's what they asked, What shall we do? Now, we talk about divine precedence, apostolic precedence. Peter had been given, along with the other apostles, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Keys that were given unlocked the doors into the kingdom of God. Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, who was his forerunner, had also talked about the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, their messages coincided. They said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when they cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now, if that's what Peter said, then don't you think that those of us who preach and teach the gospel, who tell people what to do to become a Christian, don't you think we ought to go back to the first century, when the church had its beginning, when the gospel was preached in its entirety, in its simplicity, don't you think that we ought to just tell people what they told them in the first century? Why would I think that I have the right, the latitude to come along and change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God? Who gave me that authority? And look, I don't want to, I don't want to appear condescending. I'm not trying to be arrogant unkind or unloving. 
But we're talking about matters of salvation here. We're talking about whether or not people go to heaven or whether they go to hell. Sin is the problem, isn't it? The Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and people need the saving blood of Christ, then in order to access the blood of Christ, we better be very careful about how we tell people to access that blood. We better make sure that what we tell them is divine truth. Now, there has been a lot of controversy about the Greek preposition in Acts 2 verse 38, that little preposition for found 1,750 times in the New Testament. One writer, one scholar said that the word for, that Greek preposition, always looks forward. It never looks backwards in the New Testament. That's important because what do people in the denominational world say about baptism? They would say that you're saved and then you're baptized. Not what the Bible teaches. No, Jesus said, He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved. What right do I have to tell somebody other, something other than what Jesus said? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. What right do I have to tell someone something other than what the apostle Peter told them? When Saul of Tarsus was instructed in the long ago about salvation... He said, Ananias said to him, and Saul of Tarsus had seen, the had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. For three days he's been praying and fasting. Ananias comes to him, and Ananias says, Saul, what are you waiting on? Arise and be baptized, listen to him, and wash away your sins. He had already been praying. Was he saved? No. Why? Because Ananias said you need to arise and be baptized and then wash away your sins. So we talk about the sinner's prayer. There are a lot of people in the world today that in their heart of hearts they believe that they are a New Testament Christian, but that's not what the Bible teaches. If you had asked somebody in the first century, what do I need to do to become a child of God? They would have said, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God because Jesus Himself said, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. And if you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot come. They would have told people in the first century, you need to repent because Peter said on Pentecost Day to repent. That means a change necessitated by conviction. And then to confess with the mouth what we believe in the heart. That is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. We are then instructed to be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That is, so that our sins can be washed away, so that they can be removed. Now, there are those who would say to us that you need, all you need to do is say the sinner's prayer. Others would say baptism is not essential to salvation. We said that last week. Number seven. Well, baptism is essential, isn't it? It's essential if I believe what the Bible teaches. It's essential if I believe what the Lord Jesus Christ taught in the first century. It is essential if I believe what the Apostle Peter taught in the first century. It's essential if I believe what Saul of Tarsus or what the Apostle Paul taught in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. And by the way, when we talk about the importance of being baptized into Christ, 
The reason we're baptized into Jesus Christ is to contact the blood of Christ. Now there are some that would say that we minimize the blood of Christ. That's not true. We believe strongly that the blood of Christ is what washes away sins. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 7, In Him that is in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. John said unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood. Zechariah in the long ago foretold of a day in which a fountain would be opened and the cleansing blood of Christ would be made available. Jesus shed His blood in death. And the only way to appropriate that blood is to go where it was shed. It was shed in death. That's why Paul taught in Romans chapter 6 that we're baptized into the death of Christ Jesus. When we're baptized into Christ, we contact the blood of Christ. Now, very quickly. Number eight. You don't have to be a member of the church to go to heaven. Well, when you're baptized into Christ and baptism... And by the way, we are not saying that baptism is the most important facet in God's plan of salvation. Every step is equally required. Somebody could be baptized but doesn't believe in the Lord. Well, they just got wet. Now, when we're baptized into Jesus Christ, the Bible says we are added to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. By one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. The one body is the church. That's what Paul taught in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Now, we covered those things last week. Number nine, one church is as good as another church. Have you heard that before? You heard somebody say, one church is as good as another church? Could I ask you a question tonight? Is one automobile as good as another? Is one house as good as another? Well, why not? I mean, we're talking about the church. In the religious world, people say one church is as good as another. You ever heard somebody say, join the church of your choice? You ever heard that? What about becoming a member of the church that God established? Being a part of the body that God desires. That's His church. If you don't think... Now, we talk about one church being as good as another, and there are many people that have that idea. And really, it's my conviction that they have a gross misunderstanding of the church. Jesus purchased the church with His blood, didn't He? Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Take heed to yourselves, to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. The church is the blood-bought body of Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. The church is identified as the bride of Christ, isn't it? Those of you who are men here tonight who are married, is one wife as good as another? Would you, would you make that statement? I doubt it. At least, you better not. If, you're with you, if you are with your significant other, the church is the bride of Christ. The church belongs exclusively to the Lord Jesus. It's His church. It's His body. He paid for it. And so 
the very idea that one church is as good as another church, again, doesn't meet the litmus test of truth. Here's something we, we've got to understand. This is something that's very, very difficult for people to comprehend in the religious world. There is only one church. There's just one church. Well, what church are you talking about? Matthew 16, you remember Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi? He asked His disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them this question, but whom do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus here promised to build whose church? His church. Didn't He say, I will build my church? That means Jesus promised to build His church. And by, and by looking or closely examining Matthew 16, 18, you'll find He's talking about church in the singular, not plural. I will build my church, not I will build my churches. My church. Well, what does the Bible say further about the one body? Paul said, Colossians 1 verse 18, He is the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The word beginning there means active cause. And what Paul is saying is Jesus is the active cause, the source from which the church originated. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called and one hope of your calling. Wait a minute, Paul. You said there's just one body? That's right. What's the one body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. The Bible says there's just one church. How many religious organizations operate under the banner of being a part of the body of Christ? Or just one church. The church is the body. He put all things in subjection under His feet, made Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body. So there's just one church. There's just one body. Where then are the saved? Are the saved in the body or out of the body? We've said that there are some who say you don't have to be a member of the church to go to heaven. Where does blood circulate in the body or outside the body? In the body. Where does the blood of Christ operate? Within the body or outside the body? It's in the body. That means if you want to appropriate the blood of Christ, you better be in His body. Well, how do we get into His body? We're baptized into Christ. Romans 6 verse 3. Know you not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. When we're baptized into Christ, we are placed in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. We're only added to His body. We don't join the church. We're not, we're not voted into the church. But rather, God is the one who adds us to the church. Now, the blood resides in the body. That's why we've got to be in the body. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, verse 23, Jesus is the Savior of the body. How is He the Savior of the body? Because He established the body. He purchased it with His blood. The blood circulates within that body body that we call the church. And so if we're in the church, we're among the saved. If we're not in the church, we're not among the saved. Those who are in the church, they're the sanctified. Those who are in the church, they are the justified. 
Those who are in the church are the redeemed. Those who are in the church are the reconciled. Do you remember what we said this morning, Ephesians 2, verse 16? That Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. You mean to tell me that reconciliation takes place in the one body? That's exactly right. The only way to be reconciled to God is to be in the church. The only way to be redeemed by God is to be baptized into Christ, thereby contacting His blood and letting God add you to the church. Does that make sense? It's really not that hard. What's happened is the religious landscape has been so skewed by teaching that is foreign to the New Testament. Now, what's really, well, it's both sad and interesting. The things that we're talking about tonight, again, the devil's dirty dozen, the things that we're talking about, they are taken by many people in the world, the religious world at large, they are taken as gospel truth. But they're foreign to the gospel. So again, we want to investigate, make sure that, that we're following what the Bible has to say. Number 10, some would say Jesus is not the exclusive head of the church. In other words, Jesus is in heaven. He ascended to heaven. The church is on earth. If the Lord Jesus is in heaven and we're on earth, the question arises, how then is God going to regulate the conduct of His body, the church? So what some have said is, we've got to have someone here on, on planet earth that can function as our spiritual head. We've got to have someone who can guide the church. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is the head of the church. He is the head of the body of the church. Colossians 1.18. Ephesians 1 verse 22, He put all things in subjection under His feet, made Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body. Who is the head of the body? Jesus is, isn't He? The Bible says there is one head and one body. Is that, what, is that what we believe in practice? Yes. The religious world, there are some in the religious world that would say what we have, two heads, one in heaven, one on, one on earth. So you got two heads, but one body. Is that what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches one head and one body. And then there are those that would say, well, there's just one head, but there are many bodies. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? The Bible says one head and one body. You see how we get into trouble if we don't follow what the Bible says? How does Jesus govern the church? You remember what Paul said, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, but if I tarry long that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God. What did Paul do? Wrote scripture, didn't he? And Paul said the things that he wrote were the commandments of the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we are to submit to the authoritative words of Jesus Christ. God's Word transcends culture. We're not, we do not have the liberty to rewrite Scripture or to change Tenets of doctrine, do we? 
Didn't the psalmist say, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven? Is that true or false? God's word transcends culture. So, again, the importance of God's holy word. How then does Jesus regulate the church? Well, here's what it did He left us His will, Hebrews 9 15 through 17. If you want to control your estate after your death, what would you do? You would meet with an attorney, wouldn't you? And sit down and write out a will. At your death, that will would be probated, wouldn't it? Your estate would be divided among your heirs. Your heirs would get specifically what had been outlined in your will. So here's what Jesus did. He has given us His will. It's called the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. That will regulates or governs the behavior of the church, and we are members of the church. So we appeal to Scripture. Number 11. Here is another of the devil's dirty dozen. Once saved, always saved. You ever heard that? A lot of people believe it. Once you become a child of God, you can never fall from grace. That's what they say, isn't it? Isn't that what people in the religious world teach? And yet in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, what did Paul say? Paul said, you are fallen from grace. Now wait a minute. Who's the authority here? Paul said, you've fallen from grace. Those of you who seek to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Do we have examples in the New Testament testament of people who obeyed the gospel and then succumbed to temptation and fell away. Do we have any examples of that? Do you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander, men who made shipwreck of the faith, verses 18 through 20. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24, or rather in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul speaks of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He said, men who concerning the truth, listen to him, have erred, teaching that the resurrection is already past. And do you know what he said? They overthrow the faith of some. Now, if you can never fall from grace, if you can never fall away, how then can you overthrow the faith of somebody? If we had nothing but the book of Hebrews, we could teach that people can fall from grace. The whole book of Hebrews is written against that backdrop. The writer warning over and over again Hebrew Christians about going back to Judaism. Some of those Hebrew Christians had already gone back to Judaism. Some were on the verge of doing so. And the writer is saying, look, you can't afford to fall away. You can't afford to go back. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says, talking about a fellow by the name of Demas. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas is identified by Paul at one point in time as a co-laborer, a fellow laborer of his in the kingdom of God. And now what he's saying is, Demas has left the faith. Do you remember James chapter 5, verse 19? James said, brethren, if any of you err from the faith or wander from the faith, and one converts him, let him know that he who converts a sinner from the air of his ways shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. James is writing to whom? He's writing to Christians. And he's saying, look, 
If somebody wanders away from the truth of Almighty God and you convert them, or if you have the ability to bring them back to a safe state, then you cover a multitude of sins. The very idea that once saved, always saved, is so popular, is incredible, in light of what the Scriptures teach. There are an abundant abundance of passages of Scripture that teach to the contrary. Now, number 12, very quickly. There is no pattern for New Testament worship. We live in a day and time when a lot of people would tell you, it doesn't matter how you worship God. God, God is not interested in how you worship, the forms of worship, etc., Here's the question, do we or do we not have a pattern for how we're to worship God? Didn't Jesus say God is spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth? Jesus here saying that God is the object, the aim of our worship. God is spirit and they that worship Him, that would be the assembly, wouldn't it? He said God is spirit, they that worship Him must, that would be the absolute. We must worship Him in spirit, that is, with the right attitude. Our heart, our mind must be attuned to the various acts that are going on in worship. And then we're to worship Him in truth, that is, by His authority. There is nowhere in Scripture that you will ever find God giving mankind. And you can go back and look at the patriarchal period. You can look at the law of Moses, and you can look at the Christian dispensation. Nowhere has God ever given man the latitude to dictate the terms of how he'll worship. Nowhere. God is the one who, who, authorize, or rather, who authorizes worship. God is the one that has given us a pattern for worship. So the real question is, are we willing to be submissive to the, to the will of God, to the pattern of God? And hopefully and prayerfully the answer is yes. Now, we've got about eight minutes till seven o'clock, so I better quit. Let me ask this question. What we have discussed tonight, do you understand it? Does it make sense? If you have a question about what we've been talking about, any one of the 12 things that we've discussed tonight or last week, and you don't feel like you have a satisfactory answer, please, 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 Come to me. I'll be more than happy to sit down and talk to you. I'll do my best to give you a Bible answer. And, and look, I know that what we're talking about can be very sensitive. And there are a lot of folks that this is what they've been taught. When we go out into the highways and byways and start talking to people about the Lord Jesus and about the church, we've got to understand that what we're talking about in many cases is foreign to what they've heard. They have been taught for years and years and years the tenets that we've discussed tonight. I mean, the world is filled with people who will tell you, who will tell you, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. The world will tell you it doesn't matter whether or not you're a part of the church to go to heaven. You don't have to be a part of the church to go to heaven. 
The world will tell you once you've been saved, you can never lose your salvation. Look, those things have been, they have been hammered over and over and over into the hearts and minds of people. So what we've got to do is say, all right, let's just step back. Step back, take a deep breath, open God's Word, and let's let God answer the questions that we have. The answers that I've tried to provide tonight, I don't want to insert my opinion. Because what, what, what my opinion is really is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is divine truth. Truth will save. Truth will judge. So everything that we've discussed tonight is of paramount importance. And as I said a moment ago, what we're talking about has to do with the salvation or condemnation of the souls of people. That's how important it is. So tonight we're going to close. If you're here and you are not a New Testament Christian, and by that I mean you have not done what the Bible says to do, you haven't repented of your sins, you haven't confessed the name of Jesus, you haven't been buried with Christ in baptism, rising to walk in newness of life, the Lord hasn't added you to the church, then you need to obey the gospel tonight. Paul said, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. If you're here tonight and you are not a, a part of the body of Christ, then please obey the gospel. It might take it might take some time for some of the things that we've talked about tonight to resonate. But I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, please keep searching, keep studying, and prayerfully, you'll obey the gospel. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, we encourage you to come to Christ, to come home. Let us pray with you and for you, and God will abundantly pardon. Thank you so much for your kind attention tonight. I hope and pray that what's been said has been helpful. And I would hope and pray that we have, that we have the knowledge about these things so that we can talk to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. And we pray that as we read and study and investigate your scriptures, that we will be submissive. And Father, we pray that you will give us, give us the heart to reach out to others, to kindly teach and instruct them in the way of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need tonight to respond to the invitation, won't you do so as we stand and sing?